All right. This morning, we continue our look at Bible geography. We're going to see what else we can accomplish this morning. We have been, our primary thing we've been doing so far in the study in Bible geography is more asking the question how essential it actually is. And we'll come back to that question in a little bit. But since we're studying Bible geography, let's spend a little time doing a little Bible geography. So let's do this. Uh, One of the things I'm currently doing for the podcast is 21 Days and the Minor Prophets. We've done a little bit of work in Hosea. The last sermon I reviewed on the book of Hosea was an absolute train wreck. So we won't talk about that. But if you have your Bibles, open it up to the book of Hosea. And let's start looking in chapter 1. And a specific area is going to be mentioned. And we're going to spend some time seeing what we can find about it as just kind of a quick exercise Um, in Bible geography. All right. Everybody ready? We'll start in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, and the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and a children of whoredoms, for this land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Now, almost instantaneously, just in verse 2, I think that we can agree that it becomes pretty quick what this book is about, right? Hosea is going to do something because it's going to serve as a picture of the reality of Israel, correct? And that Israel has committed what? Great whoredom, departing from the Lord, meaning that they have committed what kind of whoredom? Spiritual whoredom, okay? And so really that's what the book is about. And I think we can figure that out. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, call his name Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will, ca- I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And I shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. All right, so there's a geographical location. So let's see what we can find out about this location and see if it offers any great insight. Now, you'll notice something, right? Before it mentions the valley of Jezreel, what else does it mention? Doesn't it mention someone by the name of? Doesn't it mention someone by the name of Jezreel? Okay, I will avenge the blood of Jezreel, right? And then it's what's going to happen in the valley of Jezreel. Something's going to happen in the valley of Jezreel, right? So clearly, this may be a situation where the valley of Jezreel has some great significance that's going to give us greater insight, maybe. So if you have a Bible dictionary, let's start with Bible dictionaries, and let's see if we can find an entry for the valley of Jezreel. You just may want to look up Jezreel. I'm assuming it's going to give us something about the person, and the place, which then will be even much closer to uh, maybe understanding what's going on here, all right? So let's look. If you find the page number, let me know first, or let me know as soon as you can. 680, I'm pretty close to that right here. 
680. Six eighty, and we have an entry for Jezreel. Right. The first thing we have is the name of two people, two cities, and a valley or plain in the Old Testament. So we got a number of things na- named after Jezreel. Right. First, it's uh, a man of the tribe of Judah. Everybody see that? That and where's that reference found? First Chronicles four three. Number two. A symbolic name given by the prophet Hosea to his oldest son, Hosea 1.4. The name Jezreel signified the great slaughter that God would bring on the house of Jehu because of the violent acts he had committed, 2 Kings chapter 9. Then we have a city in the hill country of Judah, Right, um, and then we, we apparently David obtained one of his wives, and we have some information about that place. All right, I don't I don't think that has much to do with our current situation. I I, I that's what I'm going to dogmatically assert that maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think this is what we're talking about here. And then what do we have? A city in northern Israel on the plain of Jezreel, about ninety kilometers or fifty six miles north of Jerusalem. The city was in the territory of Ishkar, but it belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. Okay, and, uh, and it, it's between Megiddo and Beth Sheehan, and between Mount Carmel and Mount Gil- Gilbeah. The place of King Ahab of Israel was situated in Jezreel, the palace of King Ahab. And so I don't know if that has much to do. I mean, it has some connection. But then we have number five, right? And what do we have here? The Old Testament name of the entire valley that separates Samaria from Galilee. Some authors now refer to the western part of the valley of Estreelon, Greek for Jezreel, while the name Jezreel is restricted to the eastern part of the valley. The entire valley is a major corridor through the rugged Palestinian hills. It was a crossroads of two major routes, one leading from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the Jordan River Valley on the east, uh, the other leading from Syria, Phoenicia, and Galilee in the north to the hill country of Judah and to the land of Egypt on the south. Throughout history, the valley of Jezreel has been a major battlefield of nations. Okay, now does that offer, that? that's probably the place we're referencing, correct? Because according to the text, what is supposed to happen? And the Lord said unto him, call his name Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cease, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel, and it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel where? In the valley of Jezreel. So we think that that's the location. Now, once again, we're confronted with the same question we've been asking over and over about Bible geography. Does that offer us any great insight here? Does it, does it change anything? Does it help us in any way, shape, or form? 
if we know all of that information about where it's located and that it covers all of this and that some people refer to it as this, I don't know how much it helps. I did a little bit further research on the Valley of Jezreel, and here's some other things that I found. In the book of Hosea, the Valley of Jezreel holds significant historical and symbolic importance. Everybody hear that? Significant historical and symbolic importance. Now, did the Bible dictionary really offer us any symbolic importance? Possibly because someone is named Jezreel, right? Okay. Now, does that, does that apply? So does that connect to the Valley of Jezreel? I don't know. We'll have to see. Okay. Here's a couple of things. Number one, if you, if you want to just try to follow this, number one, historical context. The Valley of Jezreel is also known as the Plain of Estra Elon. Now, remember, the Bible Dictionary said that we're not sure, right, that some refer to that as that valley, as the Plain of, but there's not a lot of agreement on, all right? But the Plain of Estria Elon is a fertile region in northern Israel located between the mountains of Samaria and Galilee. It was a strategic crossroads for trade and military campaigns in ancient times. So, uh, everyone seems to agree that wherever this is located, it was a place for what? A lot of battles. Maybe because of the, because of just the where it was. It's, it, yeah, it's in a valley and armies could go there and they could fight. Symbolic meaning, so there's the historical context. Symbolic meaning, meaning, in Hosea chapter 1 verses 4 through 5, the valley of Jezreel is mentioned as a place where God proclaims judgment on the house of Jehu for their sins. The valley symbolizes a scene of divine punishment and retribution for Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness. Now, I don't know if that's a symbolic meaning, right? I don't know if it's a symbolic meaning as much as it's what? It's an actual location where it occurred. So I don't know if I would call that symbolic, right? Number three, prophecy fulfilled. The prophecy concerning the Valley of Jezreel in Hosea 1, 4 through 5 was fulfilled through historical events, including the downfall of the house of Jehu and the eventual destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. Okay. I, I don't have an issue there. All right, number four, symbol of restoration. Despite the judgment pronounced on the Valley of Jezreel, Hosea also prophesies about a future restoration and redemption for Israel. The valley becomes a symbol of hope and reconciliation Reflecting God's mercy and faithfulness. Now there I'm going to have to throw up a question mark. Let me read that again. It's a symbol of restoration. Despite the judgment pronounced on the valley of Jezreel, Hosea also prophesies about a future restoration and redemption for Israel. The valley becomes a symbol of hope and reconciliation Reflecting God's mercy and faithfulness. I don't know about that. No, they don't. 
So you know what we need to do. Let's see if we can find if the Valley of Jezreel is mentioned anywhere else in the book of Hosea. And if you can, then tell me. Now, the fact that they don't offer a reference is pretty, you know what that means. <laughs> I'm highly suspect here, right? I'm kind of like, I, I do what? Oh, there's four. Okay. Where's the, where's the second one? Okay, 111. Uh, the children are then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel gather together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Mm, okay. Okay, hang on. Let's, let's think about this verse. Let's think about this verse. Right? I'm going to go, I'm going to go back. Um, I'm going to go back to 10. Hosea 1.10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. So now this starts talking about what? Even though there's going to be judgment, something's going to change where? In the future, but it says in the place. Do you see that? Where it was said that you're not my people. Then shall the children of the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. Now, what's significant about that? It mentions both, right? And then they're going to be gathered together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That seems to connect Jezreel with what now? A restoration. All right. So that's so they're saying that they're that it somehow serves as symbolic. What was the next reference to Jezreel or 222? All right. Yeah, well, yeah, let's do that. 2.14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her uh, vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shall call uh, me ish I and call me no more be be I, for I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth and they shall no be no more be remembered by their name. What is this a reference to? There's going to come a time that he's going to take what what from Israel, all their idolatry. It's going to be completely removed, and then that day I will make verse eighteen a covenant. For them, with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword, and I will end the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. 
I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. I just, once again, I just want to stress this. How many times when we're reading the Old Testament are we not confronted with these promises of Israel being restored over and over and over again? And I know if you go to a Reformed church, none of that becomes Israel. It all becomes the church. And I just don't know how. I don't know how they do that. I, I'll, I'll just, I don't understand. Okay. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth and the earth shall hear the, uh, hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow unto, and I will sow her unto me in the earth and I'll have mercy upon her. They that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. So Jezreel does show up a few times connected with restoration. So I think there's some truth to that, right? Now, once again, let me ask a question. Knowing the geography of the place, is, does it, has it proven to be that significant yet? Not really. Not really. Okay. Right. Right. So I, and I know that I know we're studying Bible geography and I know in some ways I'm making an argument against it, but I, you'll see in a minute why I'm going to spend this much time debating this because it's a, it's a big hermeneutical question that we're trying to fix here. Right. About how to understand the Bible. So I'll talk about that more, but let's go through a couple, one more thing about this or two more things. All right. Connection to spiritual themes. The Valley of Jezreel serves as a backdrop for the spiritual themes of judgment, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration found throughout the book of Hosea. It illustrates the consequences of disobedience as well as the possibility of renewal through God's grace. Now, that theme is throughout the book of Hosea. I don't know if I need to know about the Valley of Jezreel to see that since the Valley of Jezreel is only mentioned how many times? Well, Jezreel is... is, the valley is once, I think, right? Right, so, yeah, so, I mean, I do believe that theme is through the whole book. I don't know how much it's connected to the valley of Jezreel. Now, they say the geographical significance. The geographical location of the valley of Jezreel as a fertile agricultural region underscores the contrast between God's provision and Israel's unfaithfulness. It highlights the spiritual symbolism of sowing and reaping, both in terms of judgment and restoration. Overall, the mention of the Valley of Jezreel and Hosea 1 encapsulates a profound message of divine judgment, redemption, and ultimate restoration for God's people. I don't know how that, I, I, I I don't know if I see that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I see those themes. I don't know if the geographical location makes that more, I don't know. If I, if I, if I was to stand before you say the Valley of Jezreel is a, it's an agricultural region, um, that's fertile. Does that, does that, I don't, I know that there may be some symbolism going on. I'm just not seeing that jumping out. I'm not seeing that. Like, I'm not seeing that. 
Well, yeah, I don't want to allegorize it, but I mean, look, I got no problem if they're in a location and you're like, whoa, this location, clearly the text is making me understand that this location is serving as a symbol. As you know, Then, okay, then I'm like, okay, I get it, I get it, right? If let's say, let's say I'm reading a text and it talks about the spiritual famine in the land, right? But the land that they're in is also known for physical famine. Then the physical famine would be a picture of the spiritual famine. Does that make sense? Well, if this valley is fertile, I I don't know, like, is it supposed to say that Israel has, I don't know. I'm trying, like, you got to have, you don't want to have to twist the text to try to make it work. You know what I'm saying? And they don't really articulate it other than they just return to what? The same themes that are put through the book that I don't need to know anything about the Valley of Jezreel to really understand it. And I don't know if understanding the Valley of Jezreel is going to help. Like if you go back to the Bible dictionary, it gives you some of the, you know, information about where it's located, right? It separates, it's the entire valley that separates Samaria from Galilee. Some authors now refer to the western part of the valley as Estri Elon, right? Greek for Jezreel while the name Jezreel is restricted to the eastern part of the valley, okay. So the main thing is that whether you, whatever you call it, it's still that, that whole area. The entire valley is the major corridor through the rugged Palestinian hills. It was a crossroads for two major routes, one leading from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the Jordan River Valley on the east, the other leading from Syria, Phoenicia, and Galilee, and to the, northern, to the north to the hill country of Judah and to the land of Egypt to the south. Now, knowing that it was a place where there was lots of battles may be somewhat significant, but I, I mean, well, all I need to know is that it's the place what, that what was going to occur according to Hosea 1.5. No, 1.5. The, the destruction of Israel, right? That's all what I really need to know, correct? So I, I, I struggle with that, but here's the reason. That I'm, I'm, I'm bringing all of this up. Okay, so let's do this. So there was a little exercise in Jezreel. There's a little exercise in, 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 in Jezreel, right? And once again, we found maybe some information, but we didn't find a lot. So here's what I want to do, right? If you have a Bible in front of you, if you close your Bible, here's what I want us to consider, all right? As a Christian, what our job is, is what we, we are... Let me state it this way. As a Christian, we believe that God's completed, final, and authoritative revelation is found where? In the Bible. All right? And now if this is God's completed, final revelation, then it's our responsibility to be able to do what? To read it and understand it. And from a Protestant perspective, right, the understanding of this book is whose responsibility? Yours. Who has the authority to interpret it according to the Protestant view? You do, right? Not the church. Not the church. In fact, you are to do what? You judge the church, right? I mean, that's the way it works. You judge the church. You In the Protestant world, you can do what to a pastor in the Protestant world? You're wrong. You're wrong. And you could just leave, right? 
Because I have no authority. Now, I know we say, oh, no, pastors have authority. We don't have any authority. Like, any, any, anyone who tries to claim that is just ridiculous because anyone can just get up and walk out, right? You're not bound because, in fact, people would quote the scriptures that you're supposed to be searching the scriptures to see if what is preached is what? True. Meaning, you're the judge. Which is, like, I don't know how Protestants don't understand the craziness that that, you know what I'm saying? That that's just insane. We say, you have to, we'll, we'll, t- we'll, we'll look at people and say, okay, now you go off to seminary, you go to Bible college, you incur all of this debt so that you can come back and stand behind a pulpit so the people who don't go to Bible college, who don't go to seminary, can tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> the Protestant world, that is the most bizarre thing I have ever, like, the, that, who came up with that system, right? And then at the same time, we claim, at the same time, we claim that the pastor holds some authority. The whole game is just so broken. But if this book is the revelation that we are to understand, then what question or what, what, what question should we ask? If I, if I hold up the Bible, say this is God's revelation, here's his authority. The question should be what is required then to understand it? Correct? All right, so I'm going to throw out some things possibly required. All right, are you ready? Here we go. First, context. It is required for you to understand the historical, cultural, social, and political context in which the books are written or the events took place. It is crucial for interpreting literature and historical narratives in an accurate way. It provides important background information that can shed light on the author's intentions or the motivations behind certain actions. So in other words, if you're going to understand the Bible, what is required on your part? To understand context. What are the contexts that you have to understand? Historical, cultural, social, and political. Now, I want to make it very clear. That is true, not just of the Bible, that's true of any work of literature. That's true of any work of literature. Okay? Now, in which many cases, when people talk about a a work of literature, you'll know within five seconds they don't have a clue of the context because they start saying things about it and you're like, I I don't know know what you're talking about, right? Well, the same thing happens to the Bible. Now, the thing is, you can test the average person on the historical, cultural, social, and political context of the Bible, and how do you think the average person in the pew would do during that test? Fail. Yet, they will do what? They will tell the pastor that they're wrong. So ultimately, if we really believe it, do we really believe you have to know that to be able to interpret the Bible in practice? We don't believe you have to know that. We don't. Second, second thing that's required would be research. Conducting thorough research to gather relevant information about the time period, the author's background, and any historical events referenced in the text is essential for interpreting literature and historical narratives effectively. Research helps to provide a more nuanced understanding of the material. So, what's another thing that's required? You've got to have knowledge of context, but you must put in the Work and actual research and study. You've got to put in the actual work. You've got to actually put in the time. 
Now, once again, I will argue the average person in the pew puts in very little time in serious, meaningful research and study. Most Christians don't even have a library of books that would help them even be able to engage. Now, you've got the internet now, but most people, like even if they even do look anything up, they do a couple of Google searches and think that they're an expert. So right there, like, that's, that's, that's a problem because I, so many times in, in conflicts that I get here, I, I've asked people, well, go do the study and then come back and show me. And then do they ever come back and show me? No, they don't come back and show me the work. They leave. So then, so then guess what? They, they didn't believe research was required to tell me that I was wrong, meaning that we don't believe that. Next, analysis. Engaging in critical analysis involves examining the text or narrative closely to identify themes, literary devices, underlying uh, uh, messages, analyzing the structure, language, symbolism. All of those things require great analysis. So you've got to do research and you've got to do deep, detailed analysis so that you can identify all the things going on in the text. I, and I, 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 look, I'm just going to be dogmatic about it. You're not going to be doing, you're not going to have that knowledge of context and doing research and analysis, and it doesn't show up somewhere on paper. Okay? If it's not on paper, you're not doing any of this stuff. And, and, or, or a computer screen. In other words, you've got to be typing something out or writing something out, or you're not doing that. In any way, shape, you're not even attempting it. Critical thinking would be required. Developing strong critical thinking skills is essential for interpreting literature and historical narratives. This involves questioning assumptions. <gasps> We're never supposed to do that, are we? Evaluating evidence, considering alternative perspectives. <gasps> no, we're never supposed to do that. And forming well-reasoned interpretations based on the available information. If you wanted a paragraph that defines what I think church should be, that's the paragraph. Obviously, not everyone believes that's how church should be. Let me go through that again. We should develop what kind of thinking skills? Strong critical thinking skills. It is essential for interpreting literature and historical narratives. Here's what we should do. Question assumptions. Evaluate evidence. Consider alternative perspectives. And form well-reasoned interpretations based on available information. That's what we I try to do in every sermon. Now, guess what? When you're doing that things, what happens? People get upset. People get mad because they don't want that in church. Do they want that? Everyone claims they want that in church. Nobody wants that in church. They don't want anything to be questioned. They don't want anything to be challenged. They just want to hear what their team says is right and never, ever challenge anything. Well, if that's the way you think, then guess what? How are you ever going to understand this? Because you're going to have to have strong critical thinking skills to even begin to try to unravel this. But nope, not supposed to do that. You're supposed to just have someone tell you what it says. You agree with that team and you never, 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 never question the team. And well, you know, I can't stand that. Then next, 
interpretation. These are all things that are required if we understand the Bible. We have to understand context. We got to do research. We have to be willing to do analysis. We need critical thinking skills. And then we have to do interpretation. Forming interpretations requires synthesizing the information gathered through research, analysis, and critical thinking to arrive at a coherent understanding of the text or historical narrative. Interpretation involves making connections between different elements of the work and drawing meaningful conclusions. I try to get you guys to do that all the time. That's, that's not the way Christians handle things. Next, cultural competence. Recognizing and respecting the cultural differences and nuances is important when interpreting literature and historical narratives from diverse backgrounds. Being culturally competent helps avoid misunderstanding, misinterpretation, and promotes a more accurate understanding of the material. In other words, you have to have some competence about what? The culture in which you step into when you open your Bible. Well, I I would say most Christians are not culturally competent when it comes to that. Historical methods. Familiarity with historical methods And approaches such as primary source, source criticism, historical contextualization can greatly enhance the interpretation of historical narratives by providing the tools to evaluate and analyze historical accounts effectively. I will say if I start going with primary source analysis, source criticism, and historical contextualization, most Christians sitting in the pew don't have a clue what any of that even is. Those are just some of the things that are required to understand any form of literature. Forget the Bible. Now, I go through all of those to ask then, we have one more that we haven't considered, which is what we're doing now. How important then is geography to it? And the reason I'm challenging this is because on one hand, again, the whole Protestant world drives me crazy, right? Right? Because we claim this authority, we claim this power. Now, I know the average Christian, they claim their ability to interpret the Bible does not come from those things that I just listed. Right? Let's be honest. The average Christian sitting in the pew does not believe their their authority and their power to interpret the Bible comes from those things I just listed. Where do they believe it comes from? God gives them. They have the power. They have the Holy Spirit that will show them. So therefore, they believe the Holy Spirit can show them apart from the basic tools you need to interpret any, any form of literature. They don't believe that applies to this. Now, when we were looking, studying Augustine, he disagreed strongly, did he not? He's like, no, the way you learn to read is the way you're into, like, it's basic skills. Now, that's a complete, radically different approach. Now, I will argue the people who believe God gives them the ability, they typically show up with the most whacked out, confused interpretations in the history of humankind, and that's usually where things go horribly wrong spiritually. All right? So, we reject that. Now, if we reject that, then you have to know these things. Typically, in the reform world, well, no, even within the reform world, there's a little bit of that. I mean, that's such a charismatic mentality, right? But um, the thing is, if these things are required, if we say they're required, you, you know what that would mean, right? Then no one has the right to interpret until they show mastery or proficiency in these areas. And if you don't, you can, I mean, we do that in public schools, 
right? Hey, what do they test? Your ability not only to read, reading comprehension. And if you can't comprehend, well, I don't know about today, but there was a time you were not supposed to be moving on to the next grade because you were not able to comprehend what you were reading, which was going to hinder your ability to move forward in your education because as you move forward in your education, you're going to have to do more reading and you're going to have to have the ability to comprehend what you're reading or you can't move forward. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? But in the church, we don't need, there's not even a test. There's not even a test given, but yet we're like, we can all interpret it. So my thing is, if we add geography to this, it only makes it even more unlikely that people can interpret the Bible. Now, I am yet to be convinced of how much geography we need. Now, we're in part three of this, and I'm still, we just did, we spent about 15, 20 minutes in Jezreel. I didn't see anything there that meant like, oh man, if I didn't know the geography of Jezreel, I'm in trouble. I needed to know other things there, right? I may need to know who, you know, well, why did he name his, why, did, why, why was the name Jezreel given? Okay, well, but the text does what? It explains it, right? It tells me the significance of the valley of Jezreel because it tells me what's going to happen there. And then in the other text, it connected Jezreel, at least to, I think in one, um, to possible restoration. All right, so... I don't know how much more I needed to know there, but we will see. But that's that's the big question we've been working on. So let's now go to this question. Let's now look at this question, all right? Let's at least ask this, right? If I can find it here in my notes. Let's ask this question. I think we can make it through this in the next 15 minutes because this is pretty quick. Why is there geography in the Bible? Why is there geography in the Bible? All right? Why? Now, some will say maybe it's there because it's the key to understanding, and I'm not so convinced of that. But let's look at some possible reasons why given. Uh, One university puts it this way. The Bible had human authors. Can we agree with that? Yeah, all right. Then they say this. Who I am, how I think, and how I communicate are a product of where we are from. Who I am, how I think, and how I communicate are a product of where we are from. All right, so who you are as a person, let's just ask you, how much of it do you think, how, who you are today, how much of it do you think is tied to where you are from? All right, you say very little. Some, okay, so you're from where? Houston, okay. Minnesota, okay. Okay, all right. So, in some ways, who I am for me is greatly dependent on where I'm from because I did so much I could, I did as much as I could to try to separate myself from where I was from, okay? So maybe that's how it impacted me. I tried to be, I wanted to be as opposite of where I was from as humanly possible, right? I tried everything in my power. 
Okay, and I know I'm still here, but I tried to leave, but the United States government brought me back. Okay, but I tried, but um, I, I did everything I could, as much as possible. However, where I'm from still greatly impacts. Now, I don't know, definitely not how I think, because I once again tried to separate myself. How I communicate, it still impacts me, right? I mean, it definitely impacts me, right? No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the, by, the way I say things, sometimes you can hear the Texan in me, right? My inability is to say Francois when I'm reading, okay, right? There's times it, it shows up, right? I mean, there's just no way to get around that, okay? So, so in some ways, they say we're a product where we're from. Now, they say because that's the case, this is where it becomes key in understanding the Bible. So, let's do something really quick, right? Let's do something. Find somewhere in the Old Testament, where it mentions a person who wrote the book, right? So obviously a book named after a person who wrote the book, and it, and it tells you where they are from. They do that a lot of times in the major prophets and the minor prophets, right? Find a book where it, it identifies where the person is from. Right? Just pick a book in the Old Testament. Let's, we'll, 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 we'll see. How, we're going to test this. Okay, all right. Well, grab your Bible dictionary and look up that land. Okay, well, that's, that's the first one you find. That's, yeah, find the Bible dictionary. I don't know how well, I don't think you're going to find a lot of uh, mentions of that place in the Bible. Okay, what does it say about the place? The land where Joe lived, okay? Okay. Now, in that case, knowing where he is from, now the Bible does tell us where he's from, but for us, I didn't tell me anything, right? I mean, because we don't even know for sure where he's from. According to the Bible dictionary, we're not even sure. So we could try to speculate certain, we could try to figure out certain things about that location. Now, maybe the original people reading that would be like, oh, he was from us. Well, you know how the people from us were, right? You know, you, you know, may, maybe there was something that the original readers would have understood. But for us, I don't know. I mean, if they don't even know for sure where it was, we could try to read a little bit about every one of those locations and we would be doing what? At our very best, we'd be doing what? Just wild speculation. So I don't know if knowing the location of where Job was from would be of any help. All right, pick someone else. Pick someone else. All right, Jeremiah. All right, the land of Benjamin. Okay. All right. What do, well, what do we know about the land of Benjamin? Okay. All right. South of Jerusalem. So that would tell us what? It's Judah. All right. So he lives where? Southern kingdom. And he's, a, he's sent to the southern kingdom, right? Right, but I'm saying he he's his message goes to Judah, so that that may give us some. I mean, 
That gives us some indication, right? I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if like, if I, I mean, the only thing is with all the prophets, it's always interesting. If they live in the north, are they being sent to the north? And if they live in the south or from the south, are they being sent to the south? I, I cannot be dogmatic about this because I'm just going from memory. I think in almost every case, if they're from the north, they're sent to the north. And if they're from the south, they're sent to the south. Because they're, they're, they're associated with those people, right? So, and if the kingdom is divided, it probably would be weird from someone from the north coming to the south, right? They'd be like, who are you, right? You're on the other side. So I, I, I still don't know. I don't know if that offers any help because what I think what they're trying to claim here is that, hey, if we know where the authors are from, then that gives us some insight to the author so that we can understand the work. But I think we can understand the work even if I don't really know much about where they're from in my estimation. Now, maybe at that time it would have offered some nuances, but I'm, I'm not sure. Right, exactly. Exactly, right. So I, I yeah, I, I'm, st- I'm still questioning this. Um, now, I do agree. Now, this where it could come into play. When you know where the author is from, they may mention certain things. They may mention a river or a sea or a mountain that would be associated from where they're from, right? For example, if I'm being from Texas, I may talk about hell storms, tornadoes, dust storms, armadillos, you know, Big Red, All Subs Burritos. All, there's things I may say that like if you're listening to me, I may say something and you guys may laugh or you may know exactly what I'm referring to where people online are like, what's an All Subs Burrito? What's a Big Red? Yeah, what's a, yeah, yeah. Up north, yeah, from Minnesota, you would know what a pop is, right? And I would like, what's a pop? Like, who's getting hit, right? Like, what are you talking about, right? Okay, uh, I can mention a Chupacabra most people in Texas know about the mythical creature, the chupacabra, because I'm always joking about it. People, some people in other places are like, what's a chupacabra? What is that? And then, like, because that's, so it's maybe there's times they may be mentioning something and maybe it would be helpful, but only then it would only help me know why they're mentioning it. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to understand the text better, right? So I, I, I still question that. It says, where I am from impacts who I am, how I think, and how I communicate. Who the biblical authors, who the biblical authors were, how they thought and how they communicated most naturally is connected to where they are from. For example, it says many Bible authors uses the phrase like up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. Now, if they constantly use the phrase up to Jerusalem, what could that possibly indicate? If we say up is north could be on a high plateau, or it could mean that they are from the south, right? Because we kind of still say going up somewhere, we still kind of refer to that as north, for at least for us, right? And I'm assuming people in the north will say, I'm going down to Texas. Okay, oh, you don't? Okay, all right. Oh, okay. All right, so maybe for us today, it doesn't have the significance. Okay, but at that time, it seemed that possibly that could have indicated something. But I like the idea that up may have meant that it's on a higher plateau, so maybe it was literally physically. Yeah, we yeah we say going, I would say going down to San Antonio. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm going north, I would say up. So 
I, I'm still going to argue that if they say up, that that may signify something. But I think I can figure that out, you know, maybe, all right? So then they, they offer the following things. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. We have like five minutes. We got to move quickly. Yeah, 2 Peter 1.21. And we'll circle back to this at some point. What do we have in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21? For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What are they beginning to emphasize here? Yeah, God spoke through human beings and human beings spoke are speaking through the Holy Spirit moving them. And guess what? And guess what? Those human beings who wrote, wrote about geography. So they're going to argue then the geography is a part of inspiration. And if geography is a part of inspiration, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, what does it say about all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Therefore, they're arguing that geography is profitable. Now, I got no problem saying it's profitable. Our issue was, remember how the Moody uh, Bible Atlas started? Not, it's essential. It's critical. You can't understand the Bible apart from it. I, that's where I have a hard time. I have a hard time with that. All right. Let's see, we, we, we may have time to finish some of this. They, they offer some following things. God's covenant and promises to Israel is associated to geography. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Yeah, we're going to be... Now, this, I do believe geography is somewhat important here, right? I think it's absolutely essential here. If there was ever an issue, this may be the issue that, of, of issues to look for, right? Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country. All right, let's just stop right here. We'll do a little bit of geographical exercises here. We, we won't get much further than this. We'll come back to this. What country is that a reference to? He's in the city of Ur. All right, grab a Bible dictionary, really. And, where did, and how did you know that? Okay, good. All right. I was just, I was just making sure, you know, we, we, because someone will, someone will email me going, how do you know that it was there? Okay. But 1131. Okay. Okay. Oh, all right. All right. Now, and everyone, and if we look up the, uh, the entry for it, I'm, I'm assuming there's one. I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's one. Uh, It's on your map. There you go. I'm just curious what the, uh, there's, uh, Ur, where do we have it? Do we have it? Where is it? Where is it? Ur. All right, here we go. Uh, Abram's native city and southern Mesopotamia, an important metropolis of the ancient world situated on the Euphrates River, strategically situated about halfway between the head of the Persian Gulf and Baghdad and present-day Iraq. Ur was the capital of summer for two centuries until Alamites captured the city. The city came to be known Ur of the Chaldeans after the Chaldeans uh, entered southern Babylon after 1000 BC. 
References to Ur of the Chaldeans in connection with Abraham are thus examples of later editorial updating, according to this. All right? Now, it says Abraham lived in the city of Ur at the height of its splendor, is what they say. The city was a prosperous center of region and industry. Now, that's this is pretty important. Now, what would be significant? Now, this is where maybe knowing a little bit may be helpful. Why is it significant to know what he's leaving? Because he's leaving the, like, the metropolis. He's leaving a, the place that, of, of, that has everything. I mean, this has got everything anybody could want or need, and God tells him to do what? Get up and go. All right, that, so they're now, knowing some of that, immediately makes now that have more, more impact. It's not like he's saying, get up and leave Ovalo. Because most people would be like, where, where? Because there's nothing here, right? Get up and leave Tuscola. Get up and leave Lon. You're like, okay, how, where, where, where? It's got to be better than this. There's nothing here, literally nothing, okay? Like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. He's in the middle of somewhere. I mean, not just somewhere. I mean, the way they describe it, he is in the place. And now, so immediately we're, now this is where maybe a little bit of this, now that adds something to the text, does it not? So this could be important. So what we'll do is as we try to figure out why it's there, well, right here now gives us a little clue. Obviously, when he tells them where he left, the readers of Genesis who would have known, I'm assuming that city would have been very well known, right? That they would have been like, he left where? Like now it would have been more significant. Does that make sense? So this may be the first time where we get, but I, this is going to be, I'm going to end with this. My belief is that most of the geography and its significance will deal with Abraham and the land promised to him and his seed. That's where geography, I think, becomes the most important in the Bible. Because that land becomes the issue throughout the entire Old Testament. Even in Hosea, right? It's, hey, I'm going to gather them back together and they're going to have the land. What land? Now, once we figure out the geography of that land, why is that significant? Because one, we can determine if they ever had it. And two, we can determine what would be required for them to have it in the future. And when we start looking at those measurements and those borders, we realize they clearly don't have it now. And it would require them to have what? Well, we'll see how much we can figure that, figure that out. Maybe tonight we'll work on that, but we'll see. All right. So what we've looked at today is we did a little bit of work on the Valley of Jezreel. We, we saw a little bit of maybe how it could help. It's not super helpful. We then looked at all the things that are required really to interpret any literary work or historical narrative. And we realized that a lot of Christians don't think that they even need to know those things. And if we add geography to it, it's only going to be another thing listed that's not really going to matter. I'm not convinced geography does matter, but if it does, then okay. But here is the first time in my estimation that we just found something of great significance. Understanding where Abraham comes from immediately impacts my reading of the text. So now we'll see when we start walk, we're going to, 
We're going to try to go look at everything that mentions Abraham's geographical locations, and I think it will become more. I think you'll see how important it becomes. Maybe then we're going to get somewhere. All right, but for now, we'll have to stop. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, I am thankful that we're in a place where we can question, we can make assumptions, challenge assumptions, test those assumptions, disagree with those assumptions, struggle, stumble, figure things out, and make hypotheses, disregard them. Many churches would never be a place where we can do these types of things. But I am grateful that we have this place for as long as we have this place. And I just ask that you continue to bless this and that somehow the things we do here in the middle of nowhere has an impact to people who listen online who may be somewhere else. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.